welcome to the Israel Bible Podcast. My name is Cindy Parker. I am an author, a speaker, and the professor of Holy Land Studies at Israel Bible Center. I am passionate about reading the Bible in the physical, historical, and cultural context of its day. And I love having these geeky conversations with people about new things. In this podcast, I'd like to invite you to join me as I sit down each week with other faculty members of IBC to discover new aspects of the Bible. These are some of my favorite dialogues because as a modern audience reading an ancient text, we know that the Bible does not need to be rewritten, but it needs to be reread. This week, we continue to explore the roundtable talk entitled Women in the Ancient Near East and Israel. The conversation is between our very own Dr. Yeshaya Gruber and Dr. Beth Alpert Nahai. She is the Associate Professor at the Arizona Center for Judaic Studies. She's an archaeologist and a biblical scholar. She has written extensively about ancient religion and culture, especially the lives of women in ancient Israel and the Near East. Her books include Archaeology and the Religion of Canaan and Israel, and the edited volume titled The World of Women in the Ancient and Classical Near East. I will put links to both of those books down in the episode notes so you can click on them if you would like to explore some of her other ideas. One of the things that becomes obvious in this roundtable talk is not only the interesting ways women contributed to society in ancient times, they were not just stuck at home all the time, but also the horrors that haunted them, the horrors of infanticide, female vulnerability in war. Dr. Nahai also addressed women who were literate and who formed social developments. All of this is a really good reason for you to go to IsraelBibleCenter.com and listen to the full roundtable talk because it's not included in this portion of the podcast. We are going to go directly into village life, and Dr. Nahai has some interesting conclusions about how to understand village organization and how this organization changed between the Canaanite and the Israelite time periods. So what we know of Canaanite culture in the land that becomes Israel and elsewhere is that there was a two kinds of systems. One was an urban system where there was a royalty that lived in the Acropolis of of a beautiful city and and they kind of ran this show. And then there were people out in the villages around. There was kind of an interconnectedness among within that territory. But when we get into the Iron Age, that social structure um, disintegrates. And suddenly what we see, certainly in the period we call Iron Age one from about 1200 to 1000 BCE, is a proliferation of small villages in relatively inaccessible locations up on hilltops in the central highlands. And people are coming into those villages, into that area which has been previously mostly unsettled. They're setting up 
hundreds of new settlements and they're working in cooperation, maybe around a valley or around a particular, you know, using a particular stream, farming a particular valley, but they have a lot of independence. There's no long distance trade. There's no big cities to run their lives. And each of these little villages becomes more or less self-reliant and autonomous. They're not trading their goods into a big city. And the people who are becoming Israel in that period of time, they have a few centuries to make this all happen. They're drawing in other people because people, Israelites and others, are fleeing into those hills. So Canaanites who, for whatever reason, are joining them. And there are a lot of people, I'm not certainly not alone in talking about that, see this period as a period where these where people had suffered some kind of oppression elsewhere, whether under Egyptian authority in Egypt or in Canaan, or under Canaanite authority in Canaan, or who were fleeing from someplace else, there's always plenty of places to flee from, come together in a more egalitarian way of life. I don't want to use like modern world words like egalitarian too seriously, because you know we're not living then, but um, there's no dominant authority over anybody. Leadership is local. Decision-making is local. And this is where it becomes important for women. And decision-making is local. They have more input into it. They can be decision-makers and not only the people who have decisions made for them. And now we are dipping our toes into early Israelite in-the-land theories. For years, scholars have debated about how to understand the artifacts on the ground, so archaeology and the discoveries of archaeology, with the biblical conquest narratives in the book of Joshua. We tend to think of the Israelites as a cohesive and singular people group moving into a place and pushing out the Canaanites. The theory explained by Dr. Nahai, which is generally accepted among a lot of scholars, is that the actual events and people were more nebulous. But along with the general observations that there is a difference in strict urban and village setup that we see from Canaanite times and how that changed into large collections of localized villages functioning on their own and not under a large city during Iron Age I, or that would be pre-Israelite monarchy, Dr. Gruber and Dr. Nahai discuss how the Israelite family structure in the Beit Av contributes to our understanding of how households functioned. Now, I suggest, as always, that you go listen to her explanation in the Roundtable Talk because it's a good corrective to what we normally imagine. I am going to jump into their conversation about religious beliefs because the layout of the Israelite villages and the homes now influence how we understand their spiritual practices. Where did people worship? Who participated in worship? And what did they use to worship? Maybe starting with the home because that's always one of the very big ones. The Bible, of course, talks about Adonai, the Lord, 
Yahweh in Hebrew as the de- the deity for Israel and the deity, of course, in the temple, and 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 that's really what the Bible is about: is the relationship between Israel and that God, that particular God. But the Bible also alludes to the worship of other deities, and always in a critical way. It never wants to support the worship of those deities, but you know. There's something about, as we already said, about complaining against something that means there must have been going on. So we can imagine certainly in the temple in Jerusalem, there was worship of the goddess Asherah, because in the book of First Second Kings, there are passages that complain strenuously about the worship of Asherah, that condemn, for example, a Givirah, queen mother, um, for supporting the worship of the goddess Asherah. But also that mentioned women weaving garments in the temple precinct for the statue of the goddess. Other deities are, are brought in maybe more in an opportunistic way when it was politic to worship Assyrian deities in the temple in Jerusalem. They were worshipped, for example, in the time of the king Ahaz. Looking at households, in some ways it's very difficult to say which deity is being worshipped. As we know, of course, um, the Bible is quite clear about this. There should be no images of God. And one thing we don't find in Israel, in general, although not 100%, nothing is ever going to be 100%, is we don't find images, say, ceramic figurines of of, of male deities. But we do find hundreds, thousands of female figurines which many people make the case are images of the goddess Asherah. But in household settings, generally we don't find images at all, but we find spaces in which worship may have taken place, sometimes a small altar. Sometimes we find, I don't know what I call ephemera, things that may have been used for worship. For example, small votive vessels or um, beads, of various colors. By now, they're never strung. We find more beads, of course, in um, tombs because they tend to get lost than we do find in households. But it reminds us that of something that is referenced a little bit in the Bible that as well, that color had sacred meaning. So for the priests, there's a certain shade of blue that's used in priestly garments and so forth. And we know this from many you know, many societies that different cult, ancient Near Eastern societies, that different cult, colors had different spiritual meanings. So if we find, for example, beads in a household, they may not just be, wow, I'm wearing an outfit that would look good with a red necklace, but rather that the color red in my spiritual world has certain meaning. It evokes protection, it evokes health, um, something like that. We often we sometimes, I should never say often, find amulets. The Egyptian god Bess was a god, a protective god for childbirth, is found in Israelite houses. Back to my discussion, my comment earlier about people knowing what went on in different cultures. So it's deliberately brought in and used by some people. I think within the household context, there would not have been a... Um, dedicated, uh, stable place where people knew to go every, you know, 
every Shabbat to um, worship or something like that, worshiping, making, generally making offerings to God. But things could be moved around, taken from one room and put into another room, taken from a storage area and put out into a central place that was accessed by people. So I think there was that kind of community worship that could have taken place in a house or maybe the house that was the house of the um, familial elders. I want to say like the grandparents might have been 40 or 45 years old. Our life expectancy was pretty short in those days compared to now. Um, and maybe it was those elders who had had a lifetime of experience who would oversee ritual um, acts, religious worship for the, all the people in their extended family. Now we're back to that extended family discussion. And so within a housing compound, maybe there was one place that for that kind of worship, it wasn't there visible all the time, but things could be brought out for worship. Space was valuable. It would be put in the closet afterwards. Um, and then women had their own particular issues because um, women rate of death in childbirth or in consequence of childbirth was high for women. So men on average lived to 40, women on average lived to 30, something like a third of babies were dead by the time they were five. So I only had a 50-50 chance of getting to something like 18. These are generic figures for this period of time, this part of the world, more or less. They're not perfect for Israel, maybe, but they're generally what we know. And so women had special concerns and special reasons to invoke a goddess who could protect in childbirth or use that little figurine amulet of the goddess who could also protect in childbirth. I think there's lots of ways that, that like the divine was invoked in a household and especially, not only, but especially by women because they had this extra risk, not that men in their household didn't care, about the well-being of the women in the household and of the babies in the household. But for women, it was more immediate. And um, so I think there are all aspects of that that, um, that are alluded to in the Bible, that are alluded to in archaeology, and that we can put together, but maybe we can't nail into shape as much as we might want to. Those are also that world of possibilities, things to be thinking about. I think that's a really helpful perspective to try to look at, you know, both men and women. You're not trying to exclude men or, you know, that put this huge dividing, <laughs> dividing line or something, but rather um, to put women in their proper place as part of this society and try to understand how it functioned. And of course, you can't understand any, how any society functioned without looking at women's lives. What is interesting here is observing the way the book of Judges is written. One of the purposes of the book is to identify the ways Israelite society is falling apart, and it sets up an argument for why the people want a king, something that then later happens in the book of Samuel. But to follow the adage that you can tell the health of a society based on how they treat the women, 
just follow the trajectory of how women are treated in the Book of Judges. We have the amazing women, Deborah and Yael, in the beginning. And then we have the really disturbing story of the concubine that's cut into pieces and the other young women who are stolen out of a vineyard at the very end of the Book of Judges. Now, if you want to follow the specifics of the biblical view of women, you should sign up for the course that Dr. Nicholas Shazer developed at IBC called Women and Gender in the Bible. As always, there will be a link in the episode notes. But if we are thinking about religious practices in the village and in the home, an interesting question arises that Dr. Gruber poses. What was the goal of all of these religious practices aside from protecting oneself? I mean, I, I do think that that protective capacity of, of God who shelters, who carries on eagles' wings, who protects, who saves his people, gives his people freedom, and also gives them a place to live. All these images of, there are so many ways to think about protection. And the Bible, you know, certainly provides us with such a, 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 a rich and broad kind of language about how the God of Israel is the God who protects but I think there's also something about community and family in religious worship, certainly in the village setting, because the survival of everybody is dependent on the same things, the fertility of the fields, the fertility of the flocks, rain in the proper season, and so forth. These things that are um, so they can't be avoided and they can't, there's no workaround for them. There's no, oh, well, we have enough grain this year. We'll import it from wherever. Famine was famine and famine affected everybody. Um, and so these kinds of subjects have brought people together, not just within the family, maybe not just within the village, but also within a region because everybody is, for example, farming. Everybody within a region is farming in the same valley everybody's crops are there. Everybody is dependent upon plentiful water in the right time. And I'm not only growing the crops, but harvesting them promptly and cooperatively together. We see that, for example, in the book of Ruth is a wonder, you know, the great idea about people coming together to harvest crops and using that to, as a means also to care for other people. So I think that, I mean, well-being protection is, of course, the essential, but it's very broad. It's, you know, take care of the immediate family, make the, you know, mother survive childbirth, that baby grow up to be wonderful and healthy, that for sure, but also God has a place for people in their communities, in their agricultural world. The book, you know, Deuteronomist and Deuteronomy and all the way through Second Kings emphasize that role of God in bringing plentitude to the land, uh, you know, flowing with milk and honey and so forth and so on. These are really um, significant spiritual concepts. And I think that if we just look at site plans and, and where villages are set up around valleys and so forth, we can kind of see it, how that acts out in, in real life too. That was something that struck me in reading through your description there, that it, it, there's this concern for personal safety, of course, because of all of the dangers and difficulties, but but it's the fertility of the whole community, the fertility of the fields, the fertility of the clan, the 
the um, well-being even of um, people who can't provide for themselves so that the, the general community can help support them as well. That's a really interesting aspect, I think, of ancient religion. And then just maybe in conclusion, we can mention that you say, taking all of this evidence that you've kind of summarized for us today, taking it all into consideration, you say religion was as much about women as it was about men. And it was as accessible to women as it was to men. So I think I think that is kind of a revelation for some people who are used to the more androcentric view. To listen to the full conversation and to hear all the bits and pieces I left out, head over to the IsraelBibleCenter.com where you can listen to this roundtable talk called Women in the Ancient Near East and Israel. While you're there, sign up as a student and start earning credit towards Israel Bible Center Certificate Program in Jewish Context and Culture. You can start with Dr. Shazer's course on women and gender in the Bible. Although in actuality, you have a huge selection of courses to choose from. Jeremy McDonald with Mason Jar Music is responsible for mixing, editing, and crafting all of the good sounds that you hear. But thank you for being curious about the world of the Bible. 